Well, I'm excited to be leaving for summer vacation right after the service this morning, and although I'm expecting a nice and a scenic drive up into northern Ontario, I also expect that at some point along the way, I'll hear a little voice coming from the back seat and saying something like this, Daddy, how long is it going to be till we get there? That question of how long is something that every parent knows very well. And if you've ever read through the Bible from cover to cover, you will know that this question appears many, many times as the people of God cry out in the midst of their trouble and affliction and ask for God's deliverance. In Psalm 30, we hear this question from David the psalmist as he pours out his heart before the Lord. How long, O Lord? Will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? Consider and answer me, O Lord my God. Light up my eyes lest I sleep the sleep of death. Lest my enemies say I have prevailed over him. Lest my foes rejoice because I am shaken. It's a question that resounds throughout the Old Testament and it continues on straight through into the book of Revelation where we hear the martyred saints under the altar in chapter 6 crying out, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood upon those who dwell on the earth? Brothers and sisters, as we open up the Word of God this morning and come into this final chapter in the book of Daniel, we are going to be confronted with this same old question. How long, O Lord? If you have your Bible with you, I want to ask you to open it up with me to Daniel chapter 12. Daniel 12, we've read through the entirety of the book of Daniel in our Sunday morning gatherings. And this morning I'm going to read one last time this final chapter from this part of God's inspired and inerrant Word. Daniel chapter 12. I remind you as I read, this is the Word of God. At that time shall arise Michael, the great prince who has charge of your people. And there shall be a time of trouble such as never been since there was a nation until that time. But at that time, your people shall be delivered. Everyone whose name shall be found written in the book. And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting contempt. And those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the sky above, and those who turn many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. But you, Daniel, shut up the words and seal the book until the time of the end. Many shall run to and fro, and knowledge shall increase." Then I, Daniel, looked, and behold, two others stood, one on this bank of the stream and one on that bank of the stream. And someone said to the man clothed in linen who is above the waters of the stream, How long shall it be till the end of these wonders? And I heard the man clothed in linen who is above the waters of the stream. He raised his right hand and his left hand towards heaven and swore by him who lives forever that it would be for a time, times, and half a time, that when the shattering of the power of the holy people comes to an end, all these things would be finished. I heard, but I did not understand. Then I said, oh, oh, my Lord, what shall be the outcome of these things? He said, go your way, Daniel, for the words are shut up and sealed until the time of the end. Many shall purify themselves and make themselves white and be refined, but the wicked shall act wickedly. And none of the wicked shall understand, but those who are wise shall understand. 
And from the time that the regular burnt offering is taken away and the abomination that makes desolate is set up, there shall be 1,290 days. Blessed is he who waits and arrives at the 1,335 days. But go your way until the end. You shall rest, shall stand in your allotted place at the end of the days. We've been working our way through the book of Daniel for about four months now, and I hope this study has been an encouragement to you in your walk with the Lord as, as it's been an encouragement and a challenge to me. The first half of Daniel, we're given important instruction on how we as the people of God are con- to conduct ourselves during this time of extended exile in a world that has fallen and broken because of sin. Daniel and his three friends have given us a marvelous picture of what it looks like to sing the Lord's song in a foreign land as we live in this world without being of this world. In a very real sense, the stories that we studied in chapters 1-6 to illustrate the same principles of Christian living recorded in the book of 1 Peter, in particular, the words of chapter 2, verse 11, where the Apostle Peter urges us as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against our souls and to keep our conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against us as evildoers, they may see our good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. We've learned through this study in the book of Daniel what it looks like to live faithfully in a culture like ours that is often hostile toward the things of God. But more than that, the book of Daniel has pointed us over and over again toward the God who is completely sovereign over all things, the God who works all things according to the counsel of His will. By now I might sound a bit like a broken record in emphasizing this theme of divine sovereignty week after week after week, but I'm not going to apologize for it because I never want you to forget it. I hope that every time you think about the book of Daniel from now on, I hope that every time you read in your own devotional life those puzzling visions of beasts and goats and rams and horns, that you will meditate upon the God who is sovereign over all, the God who is in control of all human history and all current events, even when our lives and the world around us seems to be totally out of control. Without any question, divine sovereignty is the overarching theme of the book. And if a deeper confidence in the sovereignty and providence of God is all that you take away from this sermon series, I will consider our time together to have been well spent, even if you disagree with some of the interpretations I've presented, even if you don't remember all of the details about Nebuchadnezzar, Antiochus Epiphanes, and Alexander the Great. I'm absolutely convinced, brothers and sisters, a deep-seated conviction about God's sovereignty will will help us to navigate the many trials and troubles of this life because we know that whatever comes to pass, we are not victims of random chance in a chaotic universe, but rather we are held tightly in the grip of our Father's hand and no power of hell, no scheme of man can ever pluck us out of it. When we are called to endure tribulation in our generation, as Daniel and his friends endured it in their generation, we can know beyond any shadow of doubt that our suffering is never vain or meaningless, but it's always designed by God to accomplish a greater purpose and goal. In his excellent commentary, Dr. Ralph Davis Jr. has called Daniel a manual for the suffering church. 
Although we might not like to dwell on these things very much, I for one thank God that He has given us a book like this in His inspired Word, a book that teaches us what it looks like to suffer well and in the midst of our suffering to triumph as the redeemed and ransomed people of God. The book of Daniel shows what it looks like to live as God's people in a hostile society. It shows us how to endure hardship for the glory of God. It gives us a fresh perspective on history as the outworking in time and space of God's eternal sovereign decree. But finally, and most importantly, this is a book that points us towards the one who came into this world to bring an end to all of our suffering and pain. A prophet greater than Daniel who entered into our story in order to suffer and die on the cross so that the curse of sin could be reversed, so that the devil could be defeated, so the kingdom of God could triumph marvelously over all of the kingdoms of this world. The book of Daniel reminds us that we Christians have a glorious hope. We have a glorious future because of our glorious Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Psalm 37 so beautifully puts it, In just a little while, the wicked will be no more. Though you look carefully at his place, he will not be there. But the meek shall inherit the land and delight themselves in abundant peace. Over the past four months in this sermon series, we have touched on many different themes that are immensely practical for life in a fallen world like ours. And this morning, as we bring this series to to a conclusion, we are going to see some final encouragements and some final inquiries, the encouragements being found in verses 1 to 4 and the inquiries being found in verses 5 to 13. And so with God's help, that's where we're headed this morning. Although the opening verses of our text this morning are found in chapter 12, these verses are really a continuation of chapter 11, giving us some final details in this lengthy prophetic vision. Remember, I I hope that the final three chapters of Daniel are all part and parcel of one vision. Chapter 10 introducing the vision, chapter 11 giving us the prophetic details of the vision, and chapter 12 bringing the vision and the book as a whole to a conclusion. Now last Sunday we focused in on the content of the vision as given to us in chapter 11. And we learned that the first 35 verses speak about a number of different antichrists who rose up during this period of Jewish history. A reminder that the spirit of antichrist is not something limited to the future, but is a reality in our world today as the devil and his minions march towards their eternal destination, kicking and screaming all the way. Verses 21 to 35 of chapter 11, we are presented with a description of Antiochus Epiphanes and his reign of terror. Once we come to verse 36, we come to an important transition point in the prophecy. Verses 1 to 35 of chapter 11 describe events that from our perspective are ancient history. But when we come to verse 36 of chapter 11, we are all of a sudden reading about things that are yet to happen in the future when that final eschatological antichrist will arise as a prelude to Christ's return and the end of the age. Verses 36 and following in chapter 11 describe events that are yet to happen in the future. And the reason we know this is the case is because of the first few verses in chapter 12 and the little phrase at that time that we read in verse 1. This is a phenomenon that we find quite often in biblical prophecy as events that happen in the distant past are telescoped with events that are yet to happen in the future. And here in chapter 
chapter 11 and chapter 12, there are multiple horizons of prophetic fulfillment that span all of the centuries in between Daniel and the return of our Lord. The important thing to notice here in verse 1 is the time marker that connects the prophecy of chapter 11 with the future resurrection and judgment of all human beings on the earth. In these chapters, God has been revealing some very painful lessons to the prophet Daniel, driving home the point to him that the end of the 70-year exile does not mean the end of suffering for God's covenant people, and then showing Daniel through the prophecy of the 70 weeks that tribulation and trouble will be a normal part of life for the people of God right up until the very end. Now, this is probably not a message that Daniel wanted to hear in response to those three weeks of fasting and earnest prayer. But now after giving Daniel all of the bad news in chapters 7 to 11, God is going to end the prophetic vision on a high note by showing Daniel how the story ends. No, friends, there are a number of encouragements here in the opening verses of chapter 12. And the first one that God gives to Daniel is the assurance that his angels are hard at work behind the scenes of history, fighting the enemy in the spiritual realm and protecting us from things that we cannot always see with our eyes and perceive with our senses. A couple weeks ago when we were studying chapter 10, we looked at the subject of angels and demons in some detail. Here again in these verses, we are reminded of that truth in the book of Hebrews that the angels are ministering spirits sent out uh, to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation. Now verse 1 of our text mentions the angel Michael, who we've already encountered back in chapter 10, a high-ranking angel who's been entrusted with the responsibility of protecting and guarding the covenant people of God. Later on in the New Testament book of Jude, Michael is referred to as an archangel or a chief angel. And in the book of Revelation, he's presented to us as the leader, the general of heaven's armies, going to war against the great dragon and protecting the church from spiritual attack. The book of Daniel has repeatedly highlighted the important ministry of angels. And it ought to be a great comfort and encouragement for all of us to know that this ministry of the angels has not come to an end. This is a ministry that will continue on until the very end of the age when Satan and all of the demons are finally cast into the lake of fire. That will be the final consummation of Christ's victory on the cross. Whenever we walk through times of trouble and tribulation, it should encourage us to know that the armies of heaven are surrounding us, fighting in the unseen realm as faithful servants of the Lord. But the second encouragement here in the opening verses is the reminder that in times of trouble and tribulation, God will give us the courage to persevere and thus to arrive safely at the finish line. Look at verse 2. And there shall be a time of trouble such as never has been since there was a nation until that time. But at that time your people shall be delivered, everyone whose name shall be found written in the book. Over in the New Testament Gospels, we read of the Lord Jesus sitting with His disciples on the Mount of Olives and interpreting these solemn words from the book of Daniel. It wasn't that long ago that Leslie and I were sitting on the Mount of Olives reading those words from the Lord Jesus. The Olivet Discourse in Matthew 24 and Mark 13, Jesus was looking forward in time towards the destruction of Jerusalem and the Roman armies that would enter into that city and would once again level the temple to the ground. Events that were also predicted as we've seen in previous weeks in Daniel's prophecy of the 70 weeks. 
Our Lord Jesus saw a fulfillment of this prophecy in the terrible events of 70 AD. But once again here in the book of Daniel, we see this phenomenon of telescoping as a time of great trouble and tribulation is connected with events at the very end of the age when the dead are raised back to life, when the books are finally opened in judgment. Now in the Christian church today, there and at certain points in church history, there have been some very optimistic brethren who think that the world in which we live is going to get better and better and better until finally the kingdom of God will be ushered in and the Lord Jesus will return. But I must tell you, friends, that in my reading of Scripture, I don't see a great deal of evidence for this kind of upward moral and spiritual progression. Rather, in my reading of the Bible, it seems that things are going to get much worse before they get any better and that we as the people of God can expect some very rough waters ahead. In 2 Thessalonians, Paul told the believers in that church not to expect Christ to return before a great apostasy had taken place. Not to expect His return before the restrainer had been taken out of the way. Not to expect Christ to return before the Antichrist had been revealed. All of these things, signs of Christ's second coming. All of these things that the church will one day see and experience firsthand. Put it very bluntly, the Bible paints a grim picture of the future course of humanity. But that isn't to say that we Christians need to throw up our hands in despair or that we ought to retreat back into our holy huddles waiting for the lifeboats to arrive and to pull us out of the world. God has left us here on planet earth for a reason and we have a job to do in this our generation. As history continues to march forward, as the Great Commission continues to be fulfilled, we as the people of God will continue to face the onslaught of the Antichrist just as Daniel did, just as the believers in in the Arab world are doing now, just as believers have done in every generation and in every age. I mentioned earlier the martyrs in Revelation 11 crying out from underneath the altar and asking, How long, O Sovereign Lord? May I say that those are not just martyrs from some future time of tribulation. They are martyrs from this entire age of tribulation. All those who have gone toe-to-toe with the spirit of Antichrist and have defeated Him by the word of their testimony and by the blood of the Lamb. Brothers and sisters, the Bible teaches that things will get worse before they get any better. And I believe that before Christ returns for His church, The tribulations of this present age are going to reach a crescendo as the man of lawlessness is revealed as a time of tremendous persecution descends upon us. And the reason why the Bible tells us these things about the future is not so that we can get out our calculators and try to predict the date of Christ's return. It's not so that we can pawn off our speculative theories about blood moons and other things. It is not so that we can discern whether we are living in the final generation, the point of all biblical prophecy, the point of all apocalyptic literature, is to accomplish what we read in 2 Peter 3.11. Since all of these things are thus to be dissolved, What sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of the Lord, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn? But according to His promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. 
The goal, Christian brothers and sisters, is not to escape the experience of tribulation and suffering. The goal is to glorify God in the midst of tribulation and suffering and to grow in holiness as a result, triumphing over the spirit of Antichrist by the word of our testimony and by the blood of the Lamb, just as the people of God have done in every generation before us. And the encouraging news that God gives to his faithful servant Daniel is that we will indeed be given the strength to persevere. We will be enabled by God's grace to reach that finish line and to hear well done. Look again at verses 1 to 2 of our text. And there shall be a time of trouble such as never has been since there was a nation till that time. But at that time your people shall be delivered. Everyone whose name shall be found written in the book And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life, and some to shame and everlasting contempt. Note it well, friends, that when this verse promises deliverance to the people of God, it does not promise escape from times of trouble. The promise of deliverance is not about escape. The promise of deliverance is about the final resurrection. The hope of the Christian in this life is not to escape suffering. The hope is to be resurrected on that final day of the Lord. We will awake, as the text says, into everlasting life. We will shine like the brightness of the stars above. Now, it's absolutely true. The Bible does promise deliverance for the people of God. But when God makes this promise of deliverance to us, He is speaking to us in ultimate terms. He's speaking about our deliverance from sin. He's speaking about our deliverance from divine wrath at the judgment throne. He's speaking about our deliverance from an eternity in hell that we rightly deserve. So the bad news that we've got to come to grips with is the reality of suffering and trial and tribulation in this life. But the good news is that God's redeemed people will prevail in the end and that one day we will rise from our graves in victory just as Jesus rose from His grave. Daniel has been encouraged by the protection of the angel angels. He's been assured of final perseverance of God's elect. All those whose names have been written in the book of life before the foundation of the world, Revelation 17. But the third encouragement given to Daniel here in these verses is the promise that all forms of wickedness will one day be judged and brought to an end. Although the Old Testament Scripture contain a few veiled references to the doctrine of resurrection, these verses in the book of Daniel are by far the clearest teaching on resurrection that we find anywhere. And what we learn here in verse 2 is that future resurrection is not only for the redeemed people of God, it is also something that will be experienced by the non-believer. The Bible suggests in several places that both believers and non-believers will be resurrected at the same time and that this final or general resurrection will mark the greatest dividing line in all of human history. The day of resurrection will mark the great divide between those who will spend eternity with the Lord Jesus in His kingdom and those who will spend eternity in the lake of fire. This doctrine of the final or general resurrection of both the believer and the non-believer is not only found here in the book of Daniel. The Lord Jesus also speaks of it in John 5 where He tells us that the hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear His voice and come out those who have done good to the resurrection of life, those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. 
Yet another snapshot of this great event is given in Matthew 24, where Jesus speaks of a future day when he will separate the people one from another as the shepherd separates the sheep from the goat and he will place the sheep on his right hand, but the goats he will place on his left. You know, friends, for the redeemed people of God, for you and me, and for everyone who has placed their faith in Jesus Christ alone, the day of resurrection will be a tremendous day of deliverance and great rejoicing. It is a day that we've waited for. It is a day that we've longed for with great expectation. But for those who have refused God's offer of salvation, for all those who have rejected God's Son, this will be a day of unparalleled vengeance and wrath. Writing centuries later to a suffering group of Christians in the city of Thessalonica, the Apostle Paul speaks about divine justice. And he says, this is the evidence of the righteous judgment of God that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are suffering, since indeed God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us. When the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might when he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at among all who have believed. In God's calendar, a great day of reckoning has been written down and it will come upon this earth. The day when God will answer the pleas and the prayers of all of His faithful saints and martyrs who have asked Him how long. According to Scripture, this will be a day when the sword of God's judgment falls upon this earth and all forms of wickedness and evil and sin are dealt with. Now this is the worst possible news for the unbeliever who refuses to repent, who refuses to bow the knee to Christ. But on the other hand, it is good news for the suffering and persecuted people of God. A day of vindication when wickedness and injustice will be no more. The real question here, friends, is not whether the day of judgment is going to come, but what side you are going to be on when that day finally arrives. On that day of great reckoning before God, will you be found among the sheep on the right hand or will you be found among the goats on the left? That is the question that you need to answer. You know, some have deluded themselves into thinking that death is the end of conscious existence. According to the Bible, even death will not allow you to escape your final appointment with God. For the Bible tells us that the Lord will bring you back to life on that future day. You will stand before Him either to find refuge in Jesus Christ as your Savior or else to find retribution in Jesus Christ as your righteous judge. There will be no fence-sitters in that day. There will be no escape from God's courtroom. And I would urge you this morning, friends, I would plead with you this morning on the authority of God's Word to run to Christ for refuge, to clothe yourself in the righteousness of Christ while there is still breath in your lungs, while there is still time for you to repent. For one day God's patience will run out and the doors of grace will be closed and your destiny will be forever and irreversibly sealed. 
God encourages Daniel in these verses with the dual reality of vindication for the wise and of vanquish for the wicked. But the final encouragement here in these verses relates to the preservation of God's holy inspired word. Verse 4, the Lord says to Daniel, But you, Daniel, shut up the words and seal the book until the time of the end. Many shall run to and fro, and knowledge shall increase. You know, many Christian believers have read those words and assumed that the command to shut and to seal up the words of the vision mean that this prophecy will be inaccessible and carefully hidden away from human understanding until the fulfillment takes place at some point in the future. The reality, however, is this. When God instructs Daniel to shut up the words and to seal the books, he is not telling Daniel to hide the vision or to make the vision inaccessible. Rather, God is expressing his desire that this vision be carefully preserved and protected for the sake of future generations. You've got to understand here, in the ancient world, documents were written on papyrus scrolls. And in the case of important legal documents, two identical copies were often made. One that was rolled up and sealed up and shut up, and a second one that was open and available for the general populace to read. The purpose of of sealing and shutting up one of those documents was to make sure that it could be never, it could never be modified or tampered with. And if there was ever a question about the authenticity of the open copy, could always be tested and compared with the sealed copy. This is the meaning of document sealing in the ancient world. If you want an example of this, you can look at Jeremiah 32 later today, where the process of document sealing is described in detail. By telling Daniel to seal up the book, God is emphasizing the importance of the message it contains, and at the same time, He's assuring Daniel He will protect and preserve His Word until the very end. What a comfort, what an encouragement to know, brothers and sisters, that God has not only revealed and inspired His Word through the faithful prophets who wrote it down under divine inspiration, but also that God protects His Word and that He preserves His Word so that we can read these words, so that we can benefit from this prophecy some 2,600 years after Daniel went to his grave. Our God, friends, is absolutely positively committed to the protection, preservation, and proclamation of His Word. But the tragic reality, as we read in this text, is that many will continue to run to and fro throughout the earth on an endless quest for more knowledge and information. They'll go everywhere seeking more information and knowledge, but they will never find what they are looking for because the fear of the Lord is the beginning of all wisdom. Here in the Bible, God has given us as His people everything we need for life and godliness and the unwavering commitment that God demonstrates towards the preservation and protection of His Word should encourage all of us to read it, to obey it, and to proclaim it boldly. Chapter 12 begins with a series of final encouragements, but it ends with a couple important inquiries beginning in verse 5 with a question that is posed by yet another angel who suddenly appears beside the stream. Verse 5, Then I, Daniel, looked, and behold, two others stood, one on this bank of the stream and one on that bank of the stream. And someone said to the man clothed in linen who is above the waters of the stream, How long shall it be till the end of these wonders? I heard the man clothed in linen who was above the waters of the stream. He raised his right hand and his left hand towards heaven and swore by him who lives forever that it would be for a time, 
times and half a time, that when the shattering of the power of the holy people comes to an end, all of these things would be finished. I've been priming you guys for this from the beginning of the sermon, and now we finally get to hear that biblical question. How long? But what's very interesting about the question in this particular instance is that it is not being asked by a human being. The question is now being asked by an angel who's been listening into the conversation. Now here in the book of Daniel, we've learned quite a bit about the angelic realm. And now with this question in verse 5, we learn something more about these creatures, namely that the angels do not know everything that there is to know. Unlike God the Creator who is omniscient or all-knowing, the angels have limitations on knowledge and they are very curious to learn and to grow in their understanding of God's unfolding plan of salvation. It's a very interesting and I think related verse in the book of 1 Peter where the author is speaking about the ministry of prophets in the Old Testament and he says it was revealed to the prophets that they were serving not themselves but you in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which the angels long to look. The Bible indicates in several places that the angels are curious intellectual creatures who long to understand God's gracious dealings with the human race. In some ways, the angels are a little bit like you and me. They are finite beings with limited knowledge. But in other ways, the angels are not like us at all. And that's especially true in the fact that God has devised no plan of salvation for the fallen angels. You ever thought about that before? No plan of salvation for the, for the fallen angels. When the human race fell into sin way back in the Garden of Eden, God devised a gracious plan whereby we could be rescued and redeemed from our sin. But when the angelic host fell into sin under the influence of Lucifer, no grace and no forgiveness was offered to them, or at least not, that we read about in the pages of Scripture. For the righteous angels who remain faithful to God, no salvation from sin was ever required. For the evil angels who turned against God, no salvation was ever provided. And could it be, friends, that this is the reason why the angels are so curious about God's saving plan and why they like to ask questions of this nature, longing to understand the saving grace that they themselves will never experience firsthand. The question posed here by the angel reveals a genuine curiosity about the outworking of God's sovereign plan. And in verse 7, we are given a response to this angelic inquiry. It says, I heard the man clothed in linen who is above the waters of the stream. He raised his right hand and his left hand towards heaven and swore by him who lives forever that it would be for a time, times and half a time, and that when the shattering of the power of the holy people comes to an end, all of these things would be finished. What really stands out to me about the answer given to the angel's question is the immense solemnity of it all. For before answering this question, the man clothed in linen swears a solemn oath. And instead of raising one of his hands, as was the normal custom in that day, he raises both hands. The answer to this question is immensely serious, but it is also immensely mysterious. So much so that the prophet Daniel hears the answer but doesn't understand what it means. And so take encouragement, friends, if you don't understand everything written down in this book. The prophet Daniel didn't understand everything either. 
No, I was thinking maybe I'll try this out later on this afternoon in the car when one of the kids asks me how long it will be till we get to the cottage. I'll just shut down the conversation by telling them time, times, and half a time. That'll probably keep them scratching their heads for a few minutes. When you come to think of it, that phrase has kept the church of Jesus Christ scratching our heads for quite a while, trying to figure exactly what this phrase means. The answer to the angel's question sounds cryptic, but when we go back into previous chapters, and then when we go forward into the book of Revelation, we discover that this period of time, times, and half a time is a recurring prophetic motif. Sometimes it's called three and a half years. Sometimes it's called 42 months. Sometimes in Revelation, it's called 1260 days. It all depends on the context uh, and the text. Now, thinking back on the previous visions right here in the book of Daniel, you may remember that the appearance of this exact same phraseology appeared in chapter 7, where the fourth beast was being described for us, the beast representing the Roman Empire. In chapter 7, verse 25, we read about one of the Roman emperors speaking words against the Most High God, wearing out the saints and thinking to change the times and the law for time, times, and half a time. And perhaps in that context, it's a reference, as I suggested, to Emperor Nero and his terrible persecution of the Christian church between the years of of A.D. 64 and his death in A.D. 68. Nero looms large as a biblical antichrist, but he's not the only one. We've also got that guy Antiochus Epiphanes, and we know from historical records that Antiochus' persecution against the Jews lasted approximately three and a half years before the Maccabees brothers pushed him out of Jerusalem and purified the temple. And then later on, when we get to the book of Revelation, the same period of time is used to describe the plight of persecuted Christians and their gospel witness during this present age of tribulation. And so, friends, depending on the biblical context, this three-and-a-half-year time frame can refer to a number of different things, sometimes to Antiochus, sometimes perhaps to Nero, other times to the entire evil age in which we now live. And on top of that, it's also related in some way to the 70th week of Daniel in chapter 9, a symbolic week which, as I've said, is divided in half by the death of Jesus Christ and the inauguration of the new covenant in His blood. We may never know precisely what the angel meant by the use of this phrase, but one thing is beyond question. The three and a half year time frame is intimately related to persecution and the activity of Antichrist, whether in times past, in times present, or in times future. Like many of us, the prophet Daniel didn't understand exactly what the angel meant by this phrase. And so Daniel follows up the one question with a second question, and we find it in verse 8. Then I said, O my Lord, what shall be the outcome of these things? And the answer to Daniel's second inquiry comes in verse 9. Go your way, Daniel, for the words are shut up and sealed until the time of the end. Many shall purify themselves and make themselves white and be refined, but the wicked shall act wickedly. And none of the wicked shall understand, but those who are wise shall understand. And from the time that the regular burnt offering is taken away and the abomination that makes desolate is set up, there shall be 1,290 days. Blessed is he who waits and arrives at the 1,335 days. But go your way till the end, and you shall rest and shall stand in your allotted place at the end of days. We thought things were going to get simpler 
towards the end will be very disappointed. You know, friends, Daniel's main motivation for asking this question is not to play clever intellectual games. It is not to stimulate his own idle curiosity about future times. This is a genuine question, and it comes out of a heart of deep anguish, a heart of deep concern for the people of God and their future plight. Remember, at this stage of the game, Daniel is an old man. He is pushing 90 years old. Daniel knows he is not going to live long enough to see how the story ends. Daniel knows he is not going to be able to pray and to fast and to intercede for the people of Israel forever. And what Daniel really wants to know from the angel, what he really wants to get is some reassurance from God the Father that everything is going to be okay in the end. In response to this final heartfelt plea, the angel reassures Daniel, God will indeed protect and preserve His Word. History will indeed play out just as God has sovereignly decreed. There is a hint of encouragement in this final response, but at the same time, the angel is giving Daniel and us as the readers a final reality check. And that is the fact that evil men will persist right alongside of righteous men until the very end of the age. Or as the Lord Jesus put it in his famous parable much later, the wheat and the tares will grow up together until the time of the final harvest when they will be forever separated. So what about those final two numbers? Verses 10 or 11 and 12. Reality is that nobody knows what those two numbers mean. If anyone tells you what they know what those numbers mean, don't believe them. Nobody knows what they mean. These numbers are shrouded in mystery, and I'm not even going to pretend this morning that I know what they signify. What I can say to you, however, is that both of them approximate this three and a half year period of time, and in the context of Daniel's question, it would seem logical to me that these dates have something to do with the persecution of Antiochus Epiphanes. Probably these dates are referring to the nearest fulfillment of this prophecy uh, to Daniel and the time in which he lived. The difference in the dates and the fact that the second number is larger than the first points us towards the need to persevere to the very end. No matter what it will cost us, no matter how long it will take, even if it takes a little bit longer than what we expected. No, the angel's answer to Daniel's question is bittersweet. On the one hand, it is hopeful about the final vindication that will one day come. On the other hand, it is brutally honest about the reality of suffering and tribulation for the people of God. And it really does call to mind the words of the Lord Jesus who once said, in this world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. And it is because our Lord Jesus has overcome the world and the flesh and the devil through the blood of His cross that we as His chosen covenant people can be overcomers in times of great tribulation and affliction. I think it's very appropriate that the book of Daniel ends on an immensely practical note as the angel says to him, Go your way, Daniel. Go your way, Daniel. Let God worry about the future. Let God worry about the things that you can't control. Let God worry about the things that you don't understand. And you, Daniel, you go your way. Focus your attention on running the race set before you. Focus your attention on reaching that finish line. 
And so I suppose, friends, that my final exhortation to all of us in this series of sermons is that we too might go our way to the end. That we as God's people, that we as a church family might be busy about the Lord's work in the time that He has sovereignly given us and that in the generation and the historical period in which He has sovereignly placed us. God's call on me and God's call on you is to endure hardship as a good and faithful soldier of Jesus Christ and as you do so, to grow in holiness, to grow steadily in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior. I want to leave you this morning with words from an old gospel song that I think beautifully summarize the message of this book and chapter. I remember singing it at church when I was young. It's called, I Know Who Holds Tomorrow. And perhaps some of you know it too. I don't know about tomorrow. I just live from day to day. I don't borrow from its sunshine for its skies may turn to gray. I don't worry o'er the future for I know what Jesus said. And today I'll walk beside him for he knows what lies ahead. Many things about tomorrow I don't seem to understand. But I know who holds tomorrow and I know who holds my hand. I don't know about tomorrow. It might bring me poverty. But the one who feeds the sparrow is the one who stands by me. And the path that that is my portion may be through the flame or flood. But his presence goes before me and I'm covered in his blood. Many things about tomorrow I don't seem to understand. But I know who holds tomorrow. And I know he holds my hand. I hope the same thing is true about all of you. Amen.